Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks, team, for leading us so well. It's wonderful to, to worship with you, and it's good to be back with you, church family, after a couple weeks uh, of being away. And uh, I want to encourage you this morning, would you please pull out your copy of Scripture? We're going to be in the book of Romans again, uh, Romans chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 27. And, and you might stick your thumb in there, you might put a bookmark in there, whatever you do, and uh, we're going to be diving into God's Word here together. Well, uh, this last week, I had the privilege of hunting up in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. It was pretty cool. And if you know me, that's a, that's a sweet spot for me. I was so grateful to be there. And on the second day we were there, it started to snow. And I mean, not, not just a light snow, but a, but a heavy, wet, slippery kind of snow that, that made the unpaved logging roads that we were traveling on pretty treacherous. And as uh, the, the person that I was hunting with started to drive down these roads. Um, the, the, the truck started to fishtail, <laughs> and it never stopped. I mean, it fishtailed the whole time. It was sliding back and forth, and, and it freaked me out a little bit. Uh, I thought for sure <coughs> we were going to slip right off the road. And, and as my fists grasped the door beside me, I, I had a choice to make. <laughs> what was I going to do? I was either going to trust this guy uh, who had spent years learning how to drive under these treacherous circumstances, or... I was going to hop out of the truck. <laughs> now, either decision had consequence, right? If I got out of the truck, the hunt would have been over. <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten to do what I came there to do. I'd have missed a great adventure. But, but continuing in the truck could have compromised my safety. I, I wonder, what would you have done? <laughs> well, you can guess what I did, all right? No, no lie there. Friends, so often we, we go even beyond hunting adventures. Our, our outcomes depend on who or what we trust. We, we either trust the pilot or we don't go on vacation. We either, either trust the doctor or we live with a sore knee. We, we either uh, trust the bank or we stash our money in a pillowcase and, and, and take the risk, right? Friends, all decisions like these have consequence. And, and who we trust matters tremendously. But, but I want to suggest today that there's no greater issue at stake than who we trust for matters of eternity, for matters of, of our spiritual destiny. And, and with that in mind, I want to remind you of where we've been here at Cornerstone these past several weeks. Uh, we've been rehearsing a story together. You remember what that story is called? We, it's the story we tell, amen, and it's the gospel story. It's the good news, right on. Church, we've been rehearsing the gospel together. It's a, it's a story of great consequence, of eternal consequence, in fact, both for ourselves and for those with whom we're called to share it. And so today, our story comes to a point of decision. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to get in the truck or not? All right. Now, perhaps you remember, remember the plot points of the story. Do you remember the first one? Remember what it was? We what? Or God what? God sets the mark. I should remember it, right? <laughs> God sets the mark. That's right. God has displayed his holy standard of righteousness such that all people are without excuse, Romans 1.20. See, God created and it was good and God called humanity to live according to that righteous creation standard. And that leads us to the second plot point. See, Mankind violated that standard. You remember Adam and Eve, right? When they chose to obey the serpent rather than God, they violated that standard. They sinned against God. And Romans 3 tells us that now there is none righteous. There's not even one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. See, God has set the mark, but, but we have what? We've, we missed the mark. Amen. Good. God sets the mark. We missed the mark. You guys are awesome. <laughs> 
And then last week, uh, Pastor Matt did such a wonderful job of introducing to us the third plot point, that, that Jesus, as both the one who is just and also the justifier, stands in the gap for our unrighteousness by, by propitiating, by satisfying God's wrath against our sin. See, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Hence, the third plot point is what? Jesus hits the mark. God sets the mark. We miss the mark. Jesus hits the mark. Amen. Jesus does what we couldn't do. We couldn't do it. Jesus meets the standard of righteousness set by God by living a perfect life himself. Thus, his death is uniquely positioned and sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin, to be that substitute sacrifice for us. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the only one who could do it. And his sacrifice is once for all who will believe. In other words, by, by bearing the penalty for our sin, Jesus declares us innocent. He justifies us by granting His righteous status to us. God sets the mark. We miss the mark. Jesus hits the mark. That's the gospel story so far. (laughs) All right? But now, it's one thing to hear the story. It's quite another thing to respond to it, to do something with it. See, my friend could say to me, Andy, I want to take you hunting in a pretty cool place. And I can say, man, I believe that you want to do that. (laughs) But when am I hunting? I'm not hunting until I get in the truck and we go hunting. We get out there together. you got to get in the truck if you want to go. And church, in the same way, the gospel demands our response. To be a participant in the story of God, we must respond to the one who is writing the story. In fact, the one who wrote the story. We must respond to the storyteller in trust. And it gets personal. It gets personal here. I'm warning you. This is a personal message. Everyone who wants to participate has to get in the truck. Now, To develop what that means, we're going to turn uh, to the book of Romans once again, as I already mentioned. And again, it'll start in Romans chapter 3, verse 27. And and as we dive in, I I think you're going to notice that five times in the first uh, four or five verses, Romans 3, 27 to 31, Paul uses what is perhaps one of the key words in all of the book of Romans. He uses the the term faith. Faith is a big deal. Paul is arguing that faith is necessary for salvation throughout the entire book. And, and before we develop what faith means, uh, we, we observe that Paul is advocating for its necessity. Faith is a necessary part of the gospel story. See, to, to make the work of Christ effectual in our lives, to, to appropriate that work, to, to make that work personal to us, we can do so by faith in Christ alone, by grace through faith in Christ alone. Faith is necessary for salvation. Say amen to that, would you? Amen. Amen. Faith is necessary for salvation. So watch how Paul makes his argument here. Uh, First, notice what he says in verses 27 and 28. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By, By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Friends, Paul is advocating here that faith is necessary over works. It's necessary over works. Verse 28, one is justified, one is declared righteous, just as if they'd never sinned, as Matt defined it last week. Uh, One is declared righteous by grace through faith in Jesus. And this is separate. This is apart from the works of the law. 
<laughs> you know, in the, in the predominant background of the Jewish culture, uh, which was Paul's audience in Rome, uh, things like justification, things like salvation, if you will, had become to them a product of their own ability to keep the Mosaic law, to, to keep the law which God had put in front of them. And, and so what Paul is saying here is bold, it's countercultural. He says, look guys, we're, we're not justified by our works, we're justified by our faith. Our faith is necessary over works. <laughs> There's no boasting when it comes to salvation. No one measures up except Jesus. And only by trusting in Jesus can we be saved. <laughs> You know, what if I said to the guy who was driving the truck, you know Rick, and I'll use the name Rick because that was his name. (laughs) If I said, you know Rick, I've got a pretty impeccable driving record. (laughs) I'm pretty good at this. I've done this for 26 years. Why don't don't you just let me take the wheel in your truck? (laughs) And why don't you just go back to camp and drink some coffee? I'll be fine. What would it have been like if I'd have done that? Friends, I'd have gotten stuck in a heartbeat. I guarantee it. I often leaned over to Rick and said, man, I am glad you are the one driving this truck. Friends, we're justified. We're we're saved, not by our works. We can't boast. We don't have the goods. But we're saved by faith in his. We're saved by faith in his work, in his ability in his righteous ability to meet the standard that God had set. Doug Moose says, when, when things are going well and we're feeling pretty good about ourselves, it's easy to put confidence in ourselves. Yeah, I can drive when it's in Marshfield in the summer, right? And the roads are nice. Not in the mountains, not when it snowed. Uh, it's easy to put confidence in ourselves when things are going well, but the inevitable, inevitable difficult times will come. And if our confidence rests in ourselves, we'll find ourselves with no good foundation on which to stand. Sure, sure, we can do good things sometimes, <laughs> but we can't do enough. It's never enough to meet the standard which God has set. We, we eventually get stuck. Our works do not justify us before a holy God. Therefore, there is none righteous, no, not one. We need Jesus. Jesus is both just and the justifier. He's he's the justifier of our faith. Now, notice what else Paul says that faith is over. Look at verses 29 and 30. He says this, he says, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? I love how Paul asks questions and then he answers them right away. He says, yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Paul says, look, not only is faith necessary over works, but also it's necessary over pedigree. It's necessary over pedigree. See, where you were born, uh, what kind of family you grew up in has no bearing on your spiritual status before God. You're a Jew, you're a Gentile, doesn't matter. God isn't the God of one particular people over another. He's not the God of white people or black people. He's not the God God, uh, of those on the coast versus those in the Midwest. He's not the God of women or of men. He's one God, verse 30. Hence, justification comes not by pedigree, not by that which you were born, but instead by your faith in Jesus. Faith over works and over pedigree. Faith is the critical element. Now, look at verse 31. Here's here's what Paul says. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Do we negate the law in essence? By no means. It's a strong phrase here. By no means, he says. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Friends, you remember what the law does? In, in Romans 3, verse 20, it says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
Through the law comes knowledge of sin. When we put our faith in Jesus, we agree with this statement. We, we recognize our inability to meet the righteous standards of the law. <laughs> See, apart from Christ, I break every single commandment. I fall so miserably short. I break every single one. Apart from Christ, uh, Paul says, Ephesians 2, I'm dead in my sin. That, that's what the law reveals. That you and I, we, we can't do it. And see, God never meant for the law to save us. God meant for the law to demonstrate our need for a Savior. He, he meant for the law to demonstrate, hey, you need Jesus. <laughs> you can't do this. You need a Savior. And so when we put our faith in Jesus, we uphold the purpose for which God intended the law. We don't negate the law. We don't abolish the law. We uphold it. We say, yes, the law is effectual. It did what it was supposed to do. It pointed us to our need to be forgiven of our sin. God gave us the law to reveal our need for Christ. And so again, as Douglas Moo puts it, he says, we uphold the Mosaic law as a standard of God's holiness now fulfilled in Christ. Church, Paul claims that faith is necessary over works and over pedigree in order to uphold the law, not to dismiss it, not to dismiss it. Now, as Paul moves into chapter 4, uh, he, he substantiates the, these claims and he gives even more evidence. And, and how he does it is he cites two of these Old Testament pillars of the faith. These, these people that have been respected by the Jews for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and these people that, that were given credit for doing righteous works, but in fact were those who demonstrated great faith. Uh, these are Abraham and David. And as we observe the necessity of faith for Abraham and David, we also observe its product, the product of faith. What does faith produce? And, and so for that, we're going to put our eyes on, on the first part of chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Would you follow along? Paul writes, what, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? In other words, what is the product of Abraham's faith? Our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Church, Abraham didn't receive the blessings of God because he earned the blessings of God. Say with me, Abraham didn't earn it. Ready? Abraham didn't earn it. He didn't earn it. Abraham was not justified before God because he did righteous things for God. What Abraham did is he simply took God at his word. When God spoke, he said, okay. When God said, you know, look, Abraham, if you get in the truck and you go off to the land of promise, you leave Ur and you go where I'm telling you, I'm going to bless you. And Genesis 15, 6 says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him. God credited it to Abram as righteousness. The product of Abraham's faith was, was a right standing with God. It was justification. That's the theological word. Again, just as if he'd never sinned. He was given righteous status. It's not that Abraham suddenly became perfect, but, but when he believed, God credited his account as such. God said, hey, this one's mine. I'm, I'm going to respond to his faith by uh, by making him one of mine. And, and so Paul says in verse 5, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. His faith is counted as righteousness. 
Church, Abraham was ungodly. Did you know that? Abraham was ungodly. He did a lot of foolish things. That's not what, what was the, 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 the deal breaker for him, whether or not he was counted righteous. It was his faith. Church, you and I, we're ungodly. I'm ungodly. I do unrighteous things. But that's not, what, that's not what the deal breaker is for me in whether or not I'm credited with the righteousness of God. Yes, I miss the mark. I, I fall short of God's standard. So did Abraham. Abraham exercised his only option. He turned in faith to what God provided, and he received that which God provided, which was righteousness, justification. So must you and me. So must you and me. We, we must turn in faith to what God provides. And who does God provide for us? Jesus. The Sunday school answer is the right answer again, all right? Jesus. We must turn in faith to Jesus so, so that we, like Abraham, might receive God's justification. Now, look at verses 5 through 8 uh, here as Paul turns his attention to David. I'm going to read 5 again and then go on to verse 8. It says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, is credited, is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts, credits, reckons righteousness apart from works. And here's what David wrote in Psalm 32. This is a quote from Psalm 32. These are the words of David, verses 7 and 8 here. It says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. See, David understood. David knew. Blessing comes not from what man produces, but from what God provides. <laughs> That's where blessing comes from. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Church, you and I, we, we can't earn God's favor. We can't earn God's blessing. We can only receive, and so we've got to have faith. We've got to get in the truck in order to receive the blessing. David knew it. Abraham knew it. We can know it too from God's word. <laughs> now, in verses 9 through 12, Paul uh, develops his argument even more by, by pointing out the Jews' high value on this thing called circumcision, this, this covenantal right which God gave Abraham uh, not to secure his blessing, but instead as a sign of God's blessing as a sign that Abraham had already become secure by putting his faith in, in, in what God was providing. See, Abraham, it's very clear in the book of Genesis, Abraham believed first, and his belief was credited to him as righteousness, and circumcision came after belief. It's kind of like when I married Christy. When I married Christy, and I've done a lot of weddings over the years, and it's the same way with all the weddings, uh, the, the couple makes a vow to each other. They make vows. And, and the couple looks right in each other's eyes, and it's all romantic and all googly and all that stuff. It was for us, too. It's fun. But they look right at each other, and they say, you know what? I'm going to be with you till death do us part. And, and when that person looks back at the other, they believe them, don't they? I believe that what you're saying to me is going to be true. You're making a vow to me till death do us part. Now, when do the rings come? <laughs> the, the rings come after the vow. The vow is made in faith, but the rings come as a sign, as a symbol of that vow. I wear my ring even when I'm gutting a moose, right? Because it doesn't come off in part. But <laughs> No, I mean, I wear this as a sign of my covenant with Christy. But the ring isn't what makes the covenant. The vow before God is what makes the covenant, right? For Abraham, 
Circumcision came after belief, like a ring on a a married person's finger. Friends, there is no work that secures our relationship with God other than the work of Jesus Christ. Neither circumcision, nor sacrament, nor anything else. Only by faith may we be made right before the God who sets the mark. Only by faith in Christ. Yeah? All right. Good. Now, back to what faith produces. First, justification. Faith makes us right before God. But not just that. See, faith also produces promise. Faith also produces promise. Look look at what that means for Abraham in 13 to 15. It says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law, who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, now do you see it in here? Do you see the promise? The the result of Abraham's justification was the promise that he was going to be the heir of the world, that that God was going to bless him. In Genesis 12, actually, there are three aspects to the promise of God for Abraham. God was going to give Abraham the land that he could see. When God brought Abraham out of Ur and into the promised land, the intent was that that this would be Abraham's land and it would be the land of the offspring of Abraham forever, okay? And and so uh, that's part of the promise. The other part is that Abraham would have offspring and the offspring would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And so Abraham would be blessed with a large family. And, And the third part of the promise is that through that family, blessing would come to all the nations of the earth. This is the promise which Abraham believed. And again, Paul hammers the point here. Paul is relentless in his argument. You wouldn't want to go against Paul in a court of law, all right? He'd win every time. The promise isn't earned by keeping the law. The promise is not earned by keeping the law. If that that were the case, faith would be useless. The, The law brings wrath. The law brings knowledge of sin, but faith brings promise. And so in verses 16 and 17, he says, he says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Church, the promise depends on faith. And notice what faith does here. See, God promises Abraham offspring. He says, I'm going I'm I'm to make your family large. I'm going to give you offspring. But you may remember in Genesis, in that, in that account, when God made that promise to Abraham, he wasn't a spring chicken. <laughs> he was old. And so was his wife, Sarah. In fact, she had been barren for, for many, many years her womb was dead. Nonetheless, Abraham believed in the one, verse 17, who gives life to the dead and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. There was no seed left in Sarah's womb. doesn't matter to God. What God promises, God provides. What God requires, God provides every single time. Church, the promise of God to Abraham was that he was going to bring dead things to life. (laughs) And guess what? Abraham believed. He believed. 
Verses 18 to 22, look at this. I love the the faith of Abraham here. It says, Paul describes it so beautifully. He says, in hope, he believed against hope. Was this impossible? Yes, according to man, but not according to God. In verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. (laughs) What God requires, God provides. What God promises, God provides. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. He knew how old he was. He knew how old Sarah was, which is as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but... He grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, if you go back and read the the account of Abraham, you'll see some stumbling there, some wrestling times, even some mistakes, even some blatant sin. But Abraham, like David, always came back to the promise of God. He always came back in faith. Church, are, are you like Abraham this morning? Are you fully convinced that what God has promised, God provides? Abraham took one look at God and he said, okay, I'll get in the truck. Let's go. There's something good on the other side of this. Abraham knew the source of blessing. Do you? you willing to trust him for it? And see, Abraham's promise can be our promise as well. Abraham's promise can be our promise as well. Look at verses 23 through 25. It says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. This is Genesis 15, 6, this really important passage in the Old Testament. It's not just for Abraham, but Paul says, look, it's not written for his sake alone, but verse 24, for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Church, Abraham's promise is our promise if we, like him, believe, if we put our faith in God, our provider. The God who brought, the death, brought, brought, brought life from the death of Sarah's womb is, is the God who brings life from the death of our dead souls. Ephesians 2, we're dead in our sin. We're lost in it. There is none righteous, no, not one. That doesn't matter to God. God provides for that. God provides his son, our savior, Jesus. And when we put our faith in him, God specializes in bringing life out of dead things. He proved it when he raised his son from the dead. We gotta believe though, church. We gotta believe. We gotta get in the truck. John 3:16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever what? Whoever believes, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life is God's promise to all who believe. Salvation from God's wrath against sin is the promise. The question is, do we believe? Do we believe that Jesus uh, was risen from the dead? Do we believe that God raised him from the dead? Do we believe that, that his death is sufficient to cover our sin? Do we believe that his resurrected life proves his authority to secure our righteous status before God? If that's what you believe, then yours is eternal life. <laughs> yours is eternal life. Now, in a moment, we're going to explain what actually putting our faith in Jesus means. 
What does it look like to, 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 to do it? <laughs> to take that step of faith, to get in the truck, if you will. But before we do that, I, I want to just take a moment to look ahead into the next chapter. Just the first verse. I promise we won't continue beyond that, all right? But in Romans 5.1, look at what Paul says. And this is something we preached a couple of Christmases ago. But it's so important. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, the product of faith is justification. <laughs> the, the, the product of faith is promise. And the product of faith is peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with the one from whom we were once alienated. Remember, God sets the mark. God sets the righteous standard. And guess what? We don't measure up. And so we're separated from God. The peace with God that Adam and Eve once enjoyed is marred, it's stained, it's broken. And they reach for fig leaves and they cover themselves. And God uh, killed an animal and covered them with the animal skins. But that peace was broken. Guess what? In Jesus Christ, that peace is restored. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we can be, be set back right in peace once again. Romans 5.10 says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Church, it hinges on faith. Faith. It hinges on faith. You want peace? Get in the truck. So what does that mean? Let's talk about this. What does it mean to put our faith in Jesus? What does the expression of faith actually look like? In Mark 1.15, Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God, actually in Mark, is at hand. And then he said, repent and believe in the gospel. <laughs> respond to the gospel. It's not enough just to know the story. We must respond to that story. Jesus says we must repent and believe. And church, if we believe that Jesus hits the mark for us, then we must first repent of the fact that we missed the mark set by him. We need to repent of that. We adopt David's attitude. Remember what David did when, in 2 Samuel 12 when he was confronted with his sin? What were the first words out of his mouth? I've sinned against the Lord. I, I have sinned against the Lord. Friends, to repent, we must demonstrate, we must have remorse. <laughs> we must have remorse. If we're not genuinely sorry for our sin, how can we invite God to forgive us of it? You know, saying sorry without remorse, it's just sarcasm. It's empty. It lacks sincerity. But that part's obvious to us, right? I mean, we can tell when somebody asks for our forgiveness. You know, when my kids uh, asked, said they were sorry about doing something to, to one of their brothers or sisters, if they didn't really mean it, that's obvious. It's right there. We get that. But church repentance doesn't only require remorse. I want to suggest to you that repentance also requires resolve. It requires resolve. Now, notice, it doesn't require that we solve our sin problem. We can't do that, right? We don't, we're not very good truck drivers in the mountains. Maybe some of you are, but you know what I mean. Repentance requires that we not solve our sin problem, but that we resolve to sin no more. 
that we resolve to say, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to live according to God's standard. Greg Gilbert says, even if repentance doesn't mean an immediate end to our sinning, it does mean that we will no longer live at peace with our sin. Isn't that helpful? I'm not okay with the sin that I see inside of me. Paul, Paul said in Romans 7, I don't know why I do that which I ought not do, but I do it anyway, and I'm frustrated. Praise God, there's grace. Praise God, Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation. We no longer live at peace with our sin. Instead, we'll declare mortal war against it and dedicate ourselves to resisting it by God's power on every front in our lives. Friends, when we sign up to live the Christian life, we're not going to be made perfect in an instant. I'm a testimony to that, all right? And so are you. I think you're pretty awesome, but you're a testimony to it as well. But what we do when we sign up for the Christian life is we say, God, I'm not the boss anymore. I don't want to be the driver. I want you to be that driver. <laughs> we turn from sin and towards Jesus. We, we, we repent. That, that's the first aspect of putting our faith in Christ. Now, the second aspect is this, and it's maybe uh, more in the core of what it means to have faith. We, we believe in what Jesus Christ accomplished at Calvary. We, we take the Bible to be true, and we understand that what the Bible says about what Jesus did is God's means for providing for our sin. We believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. And that the Bible, what the Bible says he did, he actually did. He, he died for our sin, and he rose again to validate his authority. And so we, we, we repent and we believe, and then, church, finally, we, we confess. We confess to the Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Church, faith isn't just, just a part of a list that we check off, another thing that we do for God. It's an attitude that we adopt. In faith, we, we trust that the solution to our sin resides in God's provision through Christ and through Him alone. Period. <laughs> Friends, it's, it's not our faith that produces the power to save us. Did you know that? It's not how much faith we have that produces the power to save us. It's actually precisely the opposite. <laughs> the power comes from Christ. We simply... Trust Him, and, and we declare it. We confess it. We say to God, look, God, I'm in. I want this. And it doesn't have to be a fancy prayer, okay? It doesn't have to, to be some magic incantation. In fact, it's not that. We just get in the truck with Jesus. We get in the truck, and we tell Him, Jesus, I, I know that, that God's standard is perfect, and I know that He sets the mark, but I've missed the mark in so many ways. And I believe that what you did for me at the cross is what's necessary for my salvation. Would you forgive me of my sin? I don't want to live this way anymore. I want you to drive. I want you to lead me where you desire. I just want to get in the truck with you. Friends, this is the last plot point before we wrap up our series next week. We don't become a part of the story until we, in faith, stand with Jesus. Say these with me. What's the first plot point? God sets the mark. What's the second plot point? We miss the mark. Third one, Jesus hits the mark. Now, here's the fourth one. I stand with Jesus. Simple, right? I stand with Jesus. I get in the truck with him. I let him drive. Say that with me. I stand with Jesus. Ready? 
I stand with Jesus. Do you? (laughs) Say it one more time. I stand with Jesus. Amen. That's it, church. Hear, Hear me on this. You're not saved because you can recite some clever, pithy phrases if that's what you think they are. (laughs) You're not saved because you've said certain words. You're not saved because you've done certain things. You're saved when you repent with remorse and resolve. You're saved when you believe in the effectual work of Jesus Christ. You're saved when you confess, Lord, I can't do it. I need you. When you put your faith in Jesus and in His righteousness and not your own. Church, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Several weeks ago, I I asked you a question. Perhaps you remember what it is. I asked you the question, if you were to die today and found yourself standing before the gates of heaven... And if God were there and he said to you, Andy, Sarah, John, Peter, whomever, why should I let you in? What would you say to him? What would you say? Friends, here's the answer. If, if you put your faith in Jesus, this is what you could say. I've repented of my sin, Lord. I've missed the mark. I've fallen short of your glory. But I believe that Jesus hit the necessary mark. And so I believe that what he did at the cross is enough to save me. And so I've repented of my sin. I'm sorry for what I've done. And I've turned, and as best I can, I've, I've, I've tried to follow you. But I understand that it's not my works that save me. It's my, my belief in Jesus that, that saves me. And so I believe that what Jesus did was enough to save me. When he died on the cross, when he rose again for my sin, that was what I needed. I put my faith in him. And I confessed it. I said it. This is what I want. I got in the truck. Church, next week we're going to bring our series to a close, but, but for now I want to challenge you. Keep, keep rehearsing this story. And if this story hasn't become your story yet, respond to it. Today's the day. Get in the truck. Let Jesus do what only Jesus does. Let him save you. But I want you to keep talking about this. I love it. I can't tell you how encouraged I am that you can recite these plot points with me. Keep going. And, and talk about it in your growth groups. Talk about it when you see somebody from Cornerstone at Festival or at Walmart or at, at Pick and Save or wherever you shop. <laughs> Mull it over in your mind and be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have when the Lord brings it to you. I, I've heard of, of several people recently sharing their faith, even somebody last week. Jesus, faith in Jesus is the critical means by which we appropriate the work of God in salvation. God sets the mark. We miss the mark. Jesus hits the mark. I stand with Jesus. Hang on to Romans 4, 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as, unrighteous, as righteousness. Remember that. Also, come back to Romans 10, 9, and 10. But friends, this is the critical story in all of human history. You ready to tell it? I pray that you are. Who's your one? Who are you praying for today? Let's pray toward that end. God, thank you for meeting us here. Thank you for your beautiful provision for us in Christ. 
God, I'm, I'm so thankful that I can't earn my salvation because I know from whence I come. If I'm honest, Lord, I, I look at the state of my heart apart from you and it's dead. There's nothing there. At least there wasn't until you came in. Until you brought me from death to life. Until you made me a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 And when the old left and the new came, here now I am as one justified before a holy God. And I had nothing to do with it. I simply cried out to you and said, Lord, I need you. And Father, if there's anybody here, if there's anybody listening to my voice, whether online or in person, or that hears me uh, a couple of days from now or 10 years from now, God, I pray that they would pause if they've not yet put their faith in you and that they would respond to this gospel story, even right now, that they would repent of their sin that they would cry out with remorse to you, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I agree that what I've done has disqualified me from you. I agree that I deserve your wrath, and I'm sorry. And I want to move from that position of, of following sin, of being a slave to its ownership. And I want to put my faith in you. And I want to trust your plan. So Lord, I, I believe. I believe that you died. I believe that you rose again. And here I am confessing it with my mouth and believing in my heart. And Lord, I want to be saved. <laughs> Father, make this the core story of us here at Cornerstone. And may we, your people, always be ready to tell it whenever you call. We love you, God, and we trust you for these things. And it's in the name of our Savior and our Lord and our King, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. It's in the empty tomb, it's on the rugged cross.